let's, uh, let's focus on the task at hand. Why don't you grab your Bibles? I've got one of those in here too, by the way. And uh, why don't we open them to 1 John chapter 2 and find verse 12. We'll, we'll be there in a minute. 1 John chapter 2 verse 12. There was a rhythm to Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings and Sunday afternoons when I was growing up. We'd get up, we'd have uh, those Pillsbury cinnamon rolls for breakfast. Uh, in fact, my parents still do that, as a matter of fact. Uh, we did it for years, Pillsbury cinnamon rolls. Um, and then we would go to Sunday school, then we'd go to Sunday morning worship, then we'd, we'd get home as quickly as possible um, and uh, take a nap because that was really important. And then we would wake up and we would go to uh, back at church something called, when I was a little boy, training union. Uh, anybody ever heard the phrase? Few of you. Everybody in here who's old like me has heard of training union. We'd go to training union. Then we'd have Sunday evening church. That was the rhythm of Sunday life when I was, when I was growing up. And that was actually the rhythm of, of church life even well into my ministry years. When I was serving as a pastor, the first church I served, that was basically how Sundays rolled around and how Sundays went. Um, but things changed. You know, people decided they needed some, some more targeted things, and so we adjusted here at, at Blue Valley, and, and our attendance increased threefold when we did, and, and we don't have a Sunday evening worship service anymore. But there's, there's, there's a piece of me that, that finds myself always looking back nostalgically at that Sunday evening worship service. It was, it was my favorite service to attend, when I was a little boy, and it was actually my favorite service to preach when I became a pastor. And the reason was is because it was just a lot more relaxed, a lot like today. Not everybody's wearing chief stuff. That'll look weird in Tennessee. But uh, it, was just, it was a lot more relaxed, and people were just kind of more themselves. And, and the message that pr was preached was warmer, and the songs that were sung just felt warmer. And there are certain hymns that I always connect with, with Sunday night. And I thought about one of those hymns several weeks ago when I began preparing for this message. It's the hymn, Living for Jesus. Have you heard the hymn, Living for Jesus? A few of you had. It goes like this. I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. Um, that is, it would take more than just water in there for me to uh, sing this for you. So, um, uh, Dr. Pepper. Um, living for Jesus a life that is true, striving to please him in all that I do, yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free. This is the pathway of blessing for me. And then the chorus, O Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to thee, for thou in thy atonement didst give thyself for me. I own no other master. My heart shall be thy throne. My life I give, henceforth to live, O Christ, for thee alone. I love that hymn, and one of the reasons I love it is that it strikes a perfect balance between the idea of work, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, making salvation a full-body experience, and also the idea of grace, that if we're going to ever be changed and if we're ever going to be transformed, it's because of the life of Jesus given to us by grace, working from the, out, the inside out so that our lives become a reflection of his, so that all the old things pass away and all things become new. Those two twin truths have to be held in the Christian life 
in equal tension. The idea of, of work and the idea of rest. The idea of striving and the idea of trusting. And John, in our passage of Scripture today, will spend time unpacking those two truths. And so if you would please, I hope you've already found uh, 1 John chapter 2. Would you stand as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning? 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. John writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. And it's a fun day, and we've had a lot of laughter, and we're looking forward to a big event tonight. But the most privileged thing that we will do any week is gather as your people to worship your name and to hear from you in your word. And so, Father, I pray that you will now bless this time and that we will give ourselves fully to it, just as fully as you have given yourself to us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Be seated. Now, even visually and how it's laid out in our English translations of God's Word, we can see that there are two big pieces. Uh, there's, a, there's just visually two sections to our text today. And it is those two sections which represent um, John sharing with us one of those truths. And so when he gives us instruction in these verses on how to live for Jesus, he talks first about that that grace piece about about living in that grace and so he tells us in the first three verses live confidently live confidently now the 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 first few verses those three verses are are almost poetic aren't they i mean they read like for us they read like poetry but that really shouldn't surprise us because john maybe more so than all of the other writers in the new testament was the most uh, artistic. It, it's not to disparage any of the other uh, writers. It's just that he he always kind of put a unique kind of artistic spin on on something. And there's some debate here whether he was coming up with something new and giving it to the church, or whether he was quoting something that existed in the church that they knew something like a hymn, or that. Maybe he wrote a hymn that had been used by them in worship, and he's reminding them of the words. But if we're going to get to the heart of what he's saying, we've got to ask ourselves a few questions. And the first question we have to ask ourselves is, who's he writing to? What does he mean? I mean, he, he talks about children, little children. He talks about fathers. He talks about young men. Who, who's that audience that is the object of those three verses? And this is one of those instances in Scripture where the most obvious answer is the incorrect answer. He is not addressing actual children and little children and actual fathers and young men. And here's how we know that. 
When, when John wants to use a term of endearment to speak in a loving way to the churches he oversees, he uses the phrase, little children. He will do that later in the, the book that we're studying, 1 John. He uses the term, little children. And the reason he does that might not be fully grasped by people who don't do what I do for a living. I have said over and over again that the thing that prepared me most for being a pastor was not going to seminary, it was being a dad. Uh, there is a real kind of fatherly instinct that a pastor, um, that pastors w- will have for the congregation that they shepherd and oversee. So he's speaking to the church, and then he's identifying various groups in the church, and there's a lot of debate about what various groups he's talking about. Um, is, there, is there a single group that he's identifying in multiple ways? Is, are there two groups? Are there three groups? And you need to study that on your own. You need to come to a conclusion about that. I've come to a conclusion that there's, that there's two groups, and he's speaking to the congregation in general and the leadership of that congregation. But you don't need to know that to get to the heart of what it is he's trying to get people to grasp in those poetic three verses. You can do that by paying attention to the because phrases there. I want you to go back and look. Verse 12, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven. Verse 13, I'm writing to you because you know him. Continuing on, verse 13, I'm writing to you because you have overcome the evil one. Continuing in verse 13, I write to you because you know the Father. I write to you, verse 14, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. I want you to notice there that he's not saying to them, I'm writing to you, church, little children, because I think. I'm not writing to you, church, because I hope that you're authentic, genuine followers of Jesus. He's saying, I'm writing to you because I know that you are. And the reason that I know that you are, get this, is because of what Jesus did for you. He's focusing in these three verses not on the evidence in their life that they might be authentic followers of Jesus. He's focusing in these three verses on the settled work of Jesus that makes us followers of Jesus in the first place. He is instilling confidence in a group of people that probably needed confidence at this point. Here's why. So far in 1 John, a lot of the things that he has said have been conditional, haven't they? He says, here's how you can know that you're in Jesus, that you belong to him, if you keep his commandments, if you love your brother. And he's going to do that more. And the reason he's doing that is because there are people that are calling themselves a part of the church who plainly by their actions and the way they approach life do not know authentically Christ as Savior. But here's what that kind of you guys need to think about this instruction will do. It will cause the sheep sometimes already in the pen to get a little rattled. People who are genuine in their faith and are doing their very best to follow Jesus with all of their heart, soul, and mind will, as they follow Jesus, recognize how far short they fall of the standard that he has set. And so you'll hear these words and you'll care deeply about living for Jesus and you think, well, I'm just not measuring up. I'm just not measuring up. Maybe I'm not saved. And what he's doing here is saying to these people, who are leaning into their faith and doing their very best to let the grace of God flow through them so that they can be changed. He's saying to them, I know 
that you're saved. Not because of, of the good things you do, but because of the thing that Christ did for you. He saved you. Live in that confidence. We're sports fans in our family. And, and the Chiefs were adopted. We moved here three, uh, 13 years ago. And so we, over the years, have adopted the Chiefs. But, but my lifelong passion has been the Kansas City Royals. And so, uh, you know, I remember where I was. I remember what the weather was like when the Royals won the, the World Series in 85. And then, of course, a few years ago, they won in 2015. And one of the things that impressed me during that run was how, was how Ned Yost, their manager, handled the team. We who follow the Royals closely know that 2011, 12, that core that won the championship stunk. I mean, they were awful. I mean, it's like they'd never seen a baseball before. They couldn't hit, couldn't catch, couldn't throw. They stunk. And everybody was hammering Ned. You need to bench these people. Everybody hammering Dayton. You need to send these people down. And Ned and Dayton both said, we're not going to do that. And they went to these guys. They went to the Mike Moustakas's and the Eric Hosmers, and in particular the Alcides Escobars, and they said, we're not sending you down, and I'm not benching you. You're a Kansas City Royal. You're always going to be a Kansas City Royal. You have the decree and the confidence of the organization. Go out there and perform. And with that kind of belief, they were able to perform and win a championship. Now, there are, are large segments of the, of the faith, Christianity, that believes the way you motivate people is by convincing them they're hanging by a thread. Right? Have you been to those churches? I mean, it, it's, it's never instilling confidence. It's always saying you might... You might not be. It's, it's always hanging by a thread. And here's what that kind of teaching does, keeping people unsettled and not confident. Here's what it does. It does one of two things. It will either paralyze you with fear so that you never get off the start line, or it will turn you into a pompous, self-righteous jack wagon that no one wants to be around. Because you'll respond to saying, well, I'm going to prove to myself that I'm in the faith, and you begin to to be the morality police with everyone around you. It doesn't do anything positive. So what John is saying to this church is this. Because of what Christ has done for you, don't worry and live. Live confidently for Jesus. But with that said, with that grace piece there, he also brings in the other peace. The peace about working out salvation with fear and trembling. So he doesn't just say in this passage, live confidently. He also says, live cautiously. Live cautiously, live aware. And here's how he does that. Look at verse 15 again. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's a lot there, a lot there. Um, we prepare messages here as a group. So there's several of us that get together. We study a text. I lead that group, and then we begin to build a sermon together. And the people that I work with know that my default way of, of preparing a message is to start with simplicity. I don't dive. 
I don't dive into words and grammar initially. What I do is I start looking for the big, simple pieces. Because I believe that when people are reading the Bible on their own, if they can be taught to see the big, simple pieces, they can have more confidence in their own Bible reading. So as I look at this passage of Scripture, which can be a little cumbersome, actually, in how it's worded, I saw saw three kind of simple movements in the text. Verse 15 is a simple command to not love the things of the world. Verse 16 gives the reason why that should not happen. You shouldn't love the world because those things are not from the Father. And then he gives a second reason in verse 17. Don't love the things of the world because they're not from the Father and also because they can't last. So very simply, don't love the things of the world because they aren't from the Father and they are temporary. So that's, that's in a summary piece what those three verses are saying. But now we ask questions. First question, what's things of the world? What's things of the world? Is he saying that we need to live such a spiritual existence that we are not to, to be engaged with the material world at all? And the answer to that question is no. Two ways I know that. Number one, The world, the material world, was created for his glory and your joy. That is told to us over and over and over again in Scripture. Material world created for his glory and your joy. You as a being were meant to enjoy the things of the world. And so when you have a stake that you love and that joy that you feel, what you're meant to do is to trace the beam of that back to its source and see in the enjoyment of that stake a God who gives ultimate joy and who gives complete joy. So he is not saying to us that we shouldn't engage the world at all, that we should disconnect from it at all because the world was created actually for our enjoyment. Here's the second reason that I know he is not saying disengage from the world. He stepped into it. He, he robed himself with flesh. The, the spirit God clothed himself in flesh as Christ and lived among us. So he can't be saying here that we have to disconnect completely from the world and only live the spiritual existence. So what is it that he's saying? He's saying something that we can begin to glimpse if we look at chapter 5. Go to chapter 5, look at verse 19. As he's wrapping up the book, he says, We know that we are from God... And then note what he says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world does. And there we begin to get a glimpse of how John uses the phrase the world. Not just in his letters at the end of the New Testament, but in the, in the gospel that is a record of Christ's life that is the fourth book of the New Testament. He uses the world as a means of identifying the world order and the system that is in complete opposition to God. So what he's saying there is we ought not to love a society and a world that is in complete opposition to God. We are to reject that rebellion and live distinctly. But then, but then he, he does something that you might not expect. Having just built everybody up in their confidence in the faith, you would expect that it would be without saying that we should reject a world that is in rebellion against God. But then he begins to say, Here's how it can subtly begin to build some inroads into your life, even though you verbally, outwardly say, I've rejected a society in rebellion against God. And this is where sometimes um, we go a little far afield 
with this passage of Scripture. Because verse 16 is not telling us the, the three bottom light root sources of all sin. It's not telling us that every sin can be traced back to the three things we see in verse, in verse 16. He's saying that, that these are examples of how sin and that world that is in opposition to God can begin to creep in your life. And they all three have one thing in common. And that one thing in common is a corruption of what is good. In verse um, 15, or verse 16, he speaks of the lust of the flesh. That is uh, obviously a reference to our sexual desires. And God gave us sexual desires as a good thing. He blessed it. It's part of what he called as good. But there's a way of enjoying that in a corrupt way in a way that God did not intend for us to enjoy it. And then he begins to talk about the lust of the eyes. Beauty is good. Beautiful things are good. And we are meant to respect it and see it and to enjoy it. But there is a way of enjoying what is beautiful to where you would desire someone that doesn't belong to you or something that doesn't belong to you. It's a corruption of what is good. And then he says in verse uh, 16 that you need to be careful of the pride of possessions. A lot of our translations of scripture say the pride of life. And this is a, a, a way of saying, look at this thing that I have. Look at this wealth that I've created, which is neutral. I mean, wealth itself is a neutral thing, but I've started to enjoy that wealth and enjoy those possessions in ways that God never intended for me to enjoy these. So there are these corruptions that can begin to work in our lives. We can outwardly say, I love Jesus. He's my all in all. I've rejected everything that's in opposition to him, but began to desire his blessings in a way that don't honor him. And in the moment, those things feel great. They feel like there's nothing wrong with that. But in verse 17, he says, the reason you shouldn't want those things over and above God is because they just don't last. They just don't last. Uh, when the Royals won the World Series, the night they clinched in 2015, it was important for me to have our family together because our family had kind of gone to games, and it's just something we, we did. But the problem was my, my daughter was in college in St. Paul, Minnesota. And so here's what we did. Caleb was, uh, had just graduated, still living at home a few months before he got married. Danny, his fiancée at the time, his wife now, came over to the house. And so Julie and I were there with Caleb and Danny. And then we FaceTimed Abby in uh, there towards the end of that game. And we turned the screen of the iPad towards the TV so she could watch it with us. And so uh, when, when we won, everybody jumped up and down and hooped and hollered. And there was, I mean, it was just, we went nuts. We just went nuts. We won the World Series. After, my kids had never been alive when that had happened. And I was in college the last night. It was a big deal. Super excited. And then, like everybody else in Kansas City, we went to Dick's Sporting Goods, spent a ridiculous amount of money <laughs> on things that I had waited my entire life to wear. I got a long sleeve t-shirt that said world champions had the trophy on it. Do you know where that is now? It's in my running drawer. The drawer that we don't speak of in our house that is filled with all of this garbage stuff that I run in that doesn't matter anymore. It's gone there. The joy of getting it subsided. The joy of that night in our basement as we all in person and virtually uh, celebrated that victory, we look back on fondly, but it subsided. And so, if, when, 
The Chiefs win tonight. And my prediction is this, 145 to 3. That's, that's what I think. I think that's, that's my pick, 145 to 3. There's going to be a lot of jumping up and down in the Lynch family. We're going to go spend silly money someplace so that we can have something and enjoy the moment. But I promise you, just a week from now, the joy of that will have subsided. Remember, joy is meant to cause us to trace that beam of light back to its source. That's what is sustainable. This will always fade away. So John says, you've got to live cautiously. I mean, trust in the fact that Jesus paid it all, all to him you owe. He's done everything that's necessary to save you. But live in a way, not that you might lose your salvation, but you might not have the full experience of it that you're meant to have because you take that which God blessed and you corrupt it for something that is temporary. So living for Jesus is to live a life of confidence in who we are in Christ, never doubting his power to keep us to himself, while at the same time living cautiously in the realization that living every day of our earthly existence in a world that is opposed to God can begin to have an impact on us that traps us in sin before we even see it coming. So what are our marching orders? Based on what John has said to us, what can we do? First, let me encourage you to do this. I have been in ministry long enough to know that there are, are many, many people who come to church every single Sunday worried to death that their salvation isn't authentic and genuine. And part of the reason that you do that is because you've never fully understood the settled work of Jesus to save you. And I want you, as your marching order from this, if that's you, to begin to reflect on what that means. And here's how you can do it. The best book on the settled work of Jesus in very simple, practical ways that I have read in the last 10 or 15 years that help you reflect on this in a good way is a book called The Imperfect Disciple by Jared Wilson. Many of you have read it. Uh, if you don't have that book, I encourage you to pick it up. It causes you to reflect that Jesus has done it all and to live in the power of that. But then for the rest of us, people who maybe, I know, I mean, I, it's a settled thing. I know that I'm in Christ. We need to always be on guard asking ourselves diagnostic questions. How healthy are we? So ask yourself a question. Am I faithful? Am I faithful in my marriage? Faithful in my marriage, not just physically, but visually, emotionally? Am I faithful in my marriage? If I'm single, am I faithful in my singleness? Am I guarding that which God has given me in a way that, that he intends for me to guard it? Ask yourself, am I faithful? Next, ask yourself, are you satisfied? Are you satisfied? Do you find yourself always wanting something else? Always wanting something more? Something that you don't have right now? Ask yourself, am I satisfied? And as far as the pride of possessions go, ask yourself, am I generous? Am I, am I generous in the ways that God has called me to be generous? Here's what I know after having lived in Johnson County for 13 years is that those things have to be wrestled with every 
single day. Because you can get used to all this, guys, in ways that begin to create a path for sin in your life that will lead you astray before you even know it's happening. So there we go. Live confidently because Jesus has paid it all. Live cautiously, aware of how living as strangers in a strange land can begin to corrupt us in ways that we've never thought about before. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.